We've got some big news to tell you about from our partners at Conservative Review. Coming this December, it's CRTV, a brand new commercial-free digital network featuring Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin, and Mark Stein. You get all of this content anywhere you go, your laptop, tablet, cell phone, or even on Roku or Apple TV. And you can have all of this programming for a year for only $89 if you sign up before December 1st at CRTV.com. But to get that special price, you've got to use my name at the checkout, Dace. That's D-E-A-C-E. So go to CRTV.com and sign up today. Levin, Malkin, Stein, all for $89 a year. If you go to CRTV.com today and use the promo code DACE. All right, before we get started with this podcast, we need to talk about something. Friends, it, it feels like the whole world can literally change for the worse overnight. You're following the news stories. With what's likely coming for our country, there is one thing you should do, and that's prepare. When you're more self-reliant, you're closer to freedom from any national crisis or job loss or economic downturn. But where do you start, and who can you trust? Let me make this clear. Building an emergency food supply to feed yourself and your family is a wise first step. And our friends at My Patriot Supply will help you prepare. Get four weeks emergency food supply for only $99, shipped free. That's 140 adult servings of easy to prepare food order today 888-457-3453 888-457-3453 or go online at preparewithcr.com that's preparewithcr.com build your emergency food supply for only $99 limit two units per caller 888-457-3453 or online at preparewithcr.com that's 888-457-3453 or at preparewithcr.com. All right, now let's get to the podcast. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Government should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Tuesday. Thanks for joining us here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. Let us know what you think. You can email us anytime. Last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. You can also like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Coming up uh, later in this hour, we're going to spend a good portion of hour one getting a firsthand account of what life is really like in Iraq and in the Middle East from someone who's been there. And she's going to join us here in studio coming up uh, in about 15 minutes. So make sure you are tuned in for that. Also, Matt Walsh is going to join us for his weekly uh, stop by the show. Matt Walsh from The Blaze coming up in hour number two. Later in hour number three, what could day one of a Trump administration really accomplish? Well, given how much the current uh, regime or the outgoing regime has enacted via fiat by hook or by crook, by a pen and a phone, turns out on numerous issues, it could, if, if, if he's willing, the spirit may be willing, sometimes the flesh is weak. If he's willing, it turns out that it could do quite a bit. I mean, we're already seeing reports today that the much ballyhooed move of the embassy in, in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem Eh, maybe not. Maybe our we'll move our ambassador to Jerusalem, but the embassy won't move. So who knows? But if, if Trump is willing to keep his promises to you, there's quite a few he can keep 
from the jump uh, a week from Friday. We'll get to that coming up in hour number three. I want to begin uh, today, though, and just spend a few minutes. Kim is here for Aaron, who's on vacation this week. I want to spend a few minutes, a few minutes, guys, just at the top of the show, on the, uh, the confirmation hearings that began today with Attorney General, likely new Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Let me just say a couple of things about these hearings. I, I know most of my other brethren are going to give you breathless analysis of this and all the Code Pink protesters and everything else, and, and maybe that's what you want, you know, uh, because, uh, you know, we're not defined anymore by what we're actually for, just simply by what we're against. And so uh, I know a lot of you just want to be, uh, want to just tune in and hear the other side mocked and derided without any advancement of your own principles, because some of you don't even know what they are. Look at the emails that I get. Your principles just seem to be whatever the Democrats are against, I'm for, even if I was against that before the Democrats were previously for it. Uh, I'm not going to do that, like ever. So, you know, I, and, and maybe that's why most uh, so many of those other guys make a lot more money than me. They give you what you want. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm going to do what I think is right because not everything we want is good. Okay. <laughs> you know, one of my brethren, I was on a symposium with one of my brethren once who said, I think I have a responsibility to give the audience what it wants. I'm like, I don't. What if what my audience wants is bad? You know, I mean, when I die, I don't give an account before my audience for the time behind this microphone. I do it before a higher authority. Yeah, I believe you have a responsibility to do the exact opposite of what he said, Steve. Yeah, I would hope so anyway. But but that's, you know, that's sort of the populist uh, rage of the day. And I get that, you know, and I get that. And a lot of people are making a huge bank doing that for you. I'm okay with that. I have a nice life. I'm not rich. But if, if the worst thing that happens to me is I just live in the nice little home in the suburbs I've been in for the last 10 years, I'll sleep really well at night because I'm not doing that. And that's why I'm going to bring something up here at the top of this show tonight that I'm, I'm, I'm almost positive. I, I don't listen to a lot of what goes on in conservative radio or media, except what I do. I just don't have time. But I'd, I'd be willing to bet vital parts of my anatomy. No one else today brought up what I'm going to bring up at the top of the show. Now, let me say it with this caveat. I think Jeff Sessions was one of the best appointments that this administration made for attorney general and could have made. This will be a dramatic upgrade over what we've previously had. But he also said today, under oath in the United States Senate, when asked about Roe versus Wade, the Dred Scott of this age, he said, quote, he believes it violates the, it violated the Constitution. He believes Roe versus Wade violated the Constitution. However, quote, it is the law of the land, and, quote, I will respect and follow it, unquote. Now, it is entirely possible that he is just pulling a Rahab, if you know the biblical reference. He's just cornered inside the city gates by a bunch of pagans, and, yeah, I, don't, I never saw any Jewish spies. I don't know who you're talking about. Rectum barely knew them. I was gonna, they weren't here. I don't know what you're talking about. Just, he could be pulling a Corey Ten Boom, right? Just lying. We're not hiding any Jews here. I don't, I don't even have a hiding space. What are you talking about? He could just be lying to the heathens. And there, there are times in history where that has been justified. I just gave you two of those examples. Rahab went from being a prostitute to being in the lineage of the Messiah by doing this. Because there was a higher authority in place at the time than what her pagan people demanded of her. That is possible. 
Now, if we're going down this road, okay, I'm actually okay with that. But could we could we not use their could we not ingest and then and then pronounce their talking points though while doing so, right? Because if that's not what's going on here, can someone explain to me how something can violate the Constitution but be the law of the land? The con- isn't the I thought the Constitution was the law of the land, guys. Now we're electing the, or we're, we're putting this guy. In, in charge of the Justice Department, the primary means by which we will be defending the Constitution for the next four years. For this matter, I can't even... I, listen, I understand why a bunch of our guys didn't stand up there and say anything, even our good guys. Didn't I tell you last week, they're all going to bow the knee. They're all going to sell out, just get used to it. Every last one of them, just accept it now. That's the nature of political parties and know that's how it works. Right? I mean, it's 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 just like... You know, when your kids play around other kids, they're going to get their sicknesses and bring them home and make other people sick. That's just, that's the cost of doing business. No use railing against it. It is what it is. I'm really surprised no Democrat today stood up and said, "Uh, excuse me. If something's the law of the land, how is it unconstitutional? You're not surprised that didn't happen. You know what? (laughs) You're right. And you know why it didn't happen? Because both sides are so immersed in their own theater. I want you to understand that though many of my brethren are telling you this thing's hanging in the balance, there is literally negative integer shot. Jeff Sessions isn't going to get confirmed. In fact, they're all going to get confirmed. Maybe one will be said no to. Only nine times in the history of this republic has a nominee for a cabinet not been confirmed, and it hasn't happened since 1989. It's because that guy was a drunk. Only nine times ever, and it hasn't happened since 1989, guys. Gore hadn't invented the internet yet. And I know Rubio and these guys are—they're all Tillerson. They're all going to vote for him. Just mark my words; it's going to happen. That's how it goes. This all—this is masterpiece theater. The Code Pink protesters is all a scam. This is all to get l- dumb loony leftists to send 25 bucks clickbait on some email account. That's all this is. This is all AstroTurf. This is all fake. There's not a chance, Snowball's chance in Hades, he's not getting confirmed. Especially after the Democrats changed the nomination rules during the Obama years. You don't even need a, the 60th vote threshold anymore. You just need a majority. He's going to get it. And they're all going to get it. This is all a dog and pony show. So I'm not going to be breathlessly giving you updates. I can't believe, I can't believe Cory Booker turned on Jeff said. I'm not, I'm not going to do that crap. No matter how much money it might make me, I'm not doing clickbait radio. Because I'm not going to lie to you. This is, this is a show for you. And that's what makes this more disappointing to me. The fact that it is a show. That there is no power they have to stop him. And we still can't get our guys. We still can't get them to use the pulpit we hand them to advance what we actually believe. Don't tell me this violates the Constitution and then tell me it's the law of the land. What in the Sam Hill is that? It's one or the other. And what's so sad is the other side, they're, they're, they're so drunk on their, on their partisan duopoly that when Session said that, I'll bet you the Democrats on the panel didn't even listen to what he said. They were just going down the checklist of the next gotcha question they wanted to ask for the cameras. And nothing of substance takes place. Tell me I'm wrong here. Am I wrong, Kim? No. When I look at this, I think, my goodness, what a lack of political courage. And for people who think, okay, first off, 
He is no Rahab. There is no way this man who shows that lack of courage is going to, you know, continue to be the voice of the voiceless when all hell breaks loose. So, no, you're you're absolutely right on this. I'm disappointed. Funny thing is, later on, they were talking about Schoolhouse Rock and what a great job that does of teaching civics. Well, he might have watched one of those himself. This is the nature of the, of the country we live in, though, today. We have this interesting dynamic where everybody hates the political parties, and yet we are all partisan hacks now. I saw polling today for the first time ever. Democrats have a higher approval rating in the CIA than Republicans. Why? Because the CIA is telling Democrats what they want to hear, and it's not telling Republicans what they want to hear. This, this is the filter. So on one hand, all we want to do is complain about how much we hate these political parties. On the other hand, they determine for us what is right and wrong, not right or wrong itself. You're listening to Steve Dace. He's got his finger on the button of truth. Put the finger down. It's Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. So, of course, it is the most uh, vitally, strategically important region of the world. It is the Middle East. But uh, what really is happening there? What are conditions really like there? Let's get a first-person account from our guest here this hour who joins us all the way from Iraq. Her name is Juliana Temarazi. She is the founder and president of the Iraqi Christian Relief Council and also the Philos Project. And we want to welcome her to the show here tonight. And Juliana, my name is Steve Dace. It is a pleasure and an honor to have you with us this evening. It is my honor. Thank you for having me, Steve. Before we get into issues and conditions, give our audience a little bit of your background. Who are you? Uh, I was actually born in Iran. I'm an Assyrian from Iran. A lot of people think when we say Assyrian, it means Syrian, which it's not. Assyrians are Ninevites, the same Ninevites that Jonah preached to uh, thousands of years ago. And we still are in existence for four, about four million of us left in the world. So I was born in Iran. I was smuggled out of Iran in 1989 twice, once into Switzerland and then once into Germany. Became a refugee because um, I escaped Iran for religious harassment purposes. And I came to the States in uh, 1990, so 20, almost 27 years ago. Um, I started the organization, Iraqi Christian Relief Council, to raise awareness among my American brothers and sisters about what's really happening to the Assyrian Christians in Iraq. And I also work as a senior fellow for Philos Project, which we engage the American Christians with matters of the Middle East. When we hear terms like Nineveh and Assyria, uh, even if we're believers, these seem like antiquated terms, right? They don't seem like they are contemporary. And I think a lot of us don't understand the history of what we're dealing with here, that there's, there's this, for example, a, a lot of Americans, and I think even a lot of believers today, have this presupposition that the lands that uh, we are discussing have just always been Islamic, that that's just always the way that they have been, you know, and I've, I've, I've made this uh, picture before, and I want to get your take on it. You know, that when we look at the book of Revelation, it begins with seven letters to churches in Asia Minor. Well, where is Asia Minor? That's modern-day Turkey. Exactly. So where did all those churches go? I mean, did the, did the Muslims just show up one day, and they just had a, they had a, they had a campaign? 
the Christians had their candidate and the Muslims had their candidate and the people decided, you know what, we're going to go with the Quran here instead. Is that, They just, over time, just sort of made their own decisions to change religions. What's really the history of these regions and their changeover, right? Because we're having this debate right now about whether Israel's capital is in Jerusalem or not. And the Muslims claim that uh, that is holy land to them, even though it's never even, it's, it's a place that, uh, that is never even mentioned in the Quran. So I, I think there's a lot of confusion about this history. Right. Yes, absolutely. Uh, a lot of people, when we started 10 years ago um, speaking about this, a lot of people didn't know that there were Christians in Iraq. And I'll tell you, what used to be called Mesopotamia, today Iraq, uh, southern Turkey, Iran, and etc., we as Assyrians, our history is 6,700 years old. Steve, if you recall when uh, ISIS destroyed the monuments and the Mosul Museum back in 2015, those were those monuments from three, 4,000 years ago. So that's how old we are as an ethnic group. And we are among the first people who converted to Christianity 2,000 years ago through St. Thomas the Apostle and St. Jude, St. Thaddeus. They came to northern Iraq, and we actually walked those grounds back in February of last year. And so we have been Christians for 2,000 years. We, Our first persecution began under the Zoroastrian Persians and then under Islam. And everything that you see today ISIS is, that is ISIS um, done, by, by, perpetrated by ISIS, is exactly what they did 14 centuries ago with the beheadings, with the raping of Christian women, with enslaving them, destroying the churches. So what's happening on the ground in Iraq that we witness today is nothing new to my to my heritage, to my nation. However, um, the, my purpose of being here is to really wake America up and really ask the church to stand in unity with their brothers and sisters. And really is not just a Christian issue. It's a humanitarian issue because we're also being erased uh, ethnically as Assyrians. What, what is really happening there beyond the images and the headlines that we are privy to through our own media? What, what is the daily life there like on the ground? These people were normal people like you and I, had jobs, had homes, and everything has been ripped away because they were Christian. Um, they now, is, this, are living- is this something that's happening new under the rise of the Islamic State, or has this been going on under the Ba'ath regime with Saddam Hussein for a longer period of time? Great question. Thank you for asking that. Under the Ba'athist party, we were cleansed as, an, as a nation, as an ethnic nation. So with the rise of Arab um, nationalism, which is the ba- result of a Ba'athist uh, movement, we were told that we are not Assyrians, that in fact we're Arabs, which is incorrect because we have Assyrian blood in our veins. Mm-hmm. So he would bury us alive because of our ethnicity. Um, also, he would destroy our churches once in a while, but it was nothing like what happened starting 2003. So in 2003, uh, our persecution really began in modern, modern day time, modern times. Um, so our churches from 2003 until t- uh, the rise of uh, ISIS, 2014, our churches were destroyed over 100 times. Mm. And at the time in 2003, we had one and a half million, 1.6 million Assyrian Christians in Iraq alone. Today, we merely have 200,000 left. Wow. Everyone has fled um, in in the diaspora. They're living in the diaspora, or they have been killed. So today, diaspora means dispersal. They've evacuated essentially. Yes, yes. Or they've been forcibly evacuated. Sometimes that's what that can mean as well, right? Exactly. So at the time prior to 2014. 
uh, we were given three options, to convert to Islam, to pay the tax called jizya, supposedly for protection, which really didn't work anyways, or to leave. So a lot of people left. Those who were left behind, a lot of them were killed. Our priests were mutilated. Our children were uh, kidnapped and cut into pieces, sent to their families. Um, I'll tell you, I'm sorry, this is a graphic image that I'm going to paint for you, but there was in 2007, there was this family that whose child was kidnapped. And the uh, Muslim, the Al-Qaeda at the time, uh, asked the family to come in and bring the ransom to claim their child. When they went in, and we Middle Easterners, as you know, we uh, throw a big feast for our guests. So they had made kebabs and rice. And please forgive me what I'm about to tell you. It's a little bit graphic. So when they consumed the meat and the rice, it was actually their child. So that is the reality that wow. these people... and. Fast forward to 2014, they did the same exact thing to 14 children of the Yazidi group, which is the other minority group living in Iraq that has been completely devastated. Um, and a lot of times people say Christians are in camps. I go to the Middle East a great deal. The only place the Christians are in camps is in northern Iraq. The rest of the countries that people have fled to, like Lebanon, like Jordan, like Turkey, they're living in slums, Steve. They live in ungodly conditions. There are 45,000 Assyrians in Turkey. Today, I received a text message from Turkey pleading with us to help, um, who are being evicted from their homes when they're discovered they're Christian, or they have to pretend to be Muslim in order for them to go to an Islamic institution. This is Turkey, one of our so-called moderate Arab nations that we were talking, that we're going to put them in NATO and everything else, right? They're our friend. Exactly, exactly. So in Iraq today, you all know that uh, Mosul liberation began at the end of October. So today, there are a lot of those Christian cities that have been uh, liberated, but they need to be uh, rebuilt. This is a troubling conversation, uh, but it is one that we absolutely have to have and we'll continue in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Everybody needs a hobby. So what's yours? Resurrection. He's bringing back the American way. It's Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Juliana Tamarazzi is our guest. She is the founder and president of the Iraqi Christian Relief Council, also the Philos Project. We'll learn more about that during the course of today, to, uh, tonight's conversation as well. I mentioned before the last break that this is a troubling conversation, and, and I want to make I want to clarify why I'm, I'm I'm describing it as such, Juliana, for a moment, because it's not just it, it's it's not just the human toll that you are describing or the or the grisly details that you are sharing with us, and and I think these are things that need to be shared, and we we are encouraged as Americans, particularly, to live a life of complacency, and and sometimes that requires a. a a, pro- a level of provocation in this part of the world to get people's attention because they are so distracted by leisure that in other parts of the world you may not have to be uh, as uh, provocative in order to get their attention because they are not similarly afflicted with as much leisure temptation as we are. But that's not what I find troubling about this. What, what I find troubling about this is the dateline that you were laying out for us. I want to go to Afghanistan for a moment. There was a, a report from the State Department about four years ago 
that that showed that despite the quote unquote liberation of Afghanistan, not a single public Christian church remained in the country. When even under the under the Taliban, and no, we're not saying things were good under the Taliban or they were better. Um, but even under the Taliban, there were at least the veneer of a few public Christian churches. That, but that's just gone. They're gone in Afghanistan now. You seem to be describing a similar plight, especially when I heard you give the date uh, 2003, because that would have been during the time that uh, that we invaded Iraq and removed Saddam Hussein from power, right? So are are you telling us that religious liberty has actually... even before the rise of Islamic State, was actually diminishing and declining in Iraq because of the change of the regime there even before Islamic State arose. Saddam Hussein was a dictator and he needed to be be removed, but we had some religious liberty under his ruling, yes. Uh, we were able to see he was a secular. He was a he was a dictator. So he squashed everybody, if you will. He controlled everybody, the Shiites, the Christians. But the vacuum of his replacement has been religionists. Devastating. We have beca- we have really our future in northern Iraq if the United States and other powerful countries in the world don't come to our aid. You will see the extinction of a sixty seven hundred year old nation and a two thousand year old. A community that has kept Christianity alive despite all the persecution. Um, so I will tell you that our churches have been decimated. Majority of our churches have been chemically bombed. Wow. Our church treasures have been either looted or burnt. Uh, I'm sure you've seen reports of bishops escaping and grabbing uh, a few books that monks had put together. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we have very little left. We have our faith left. Um, truly, I'll, I'll tell you, back in February when we were in Iraq last year, they told us, these persecuted Christians told us that we are now more, even more devoted to Christ than we were prior to the persecution. So mm. it does something to the hearts and minds of Christians. Persecution does. However, if we geopolitically, if we're speaking geopolitically, sure. that is going to be the end of Christianity in Iraq, in its cradle. Have, and if this is an unfair question for me to ask you, tell me. It's just, we get, to get a subject matter expert with firsthand experience who has lived what we are only watching vicariously through the news is a rare opportunity. I want to take advantage of it. But if I'm asking you, I'll kick your coverage. Feel free to tell me. Yes. Is this a result of a miscalculation in believing in the Arab Spring, um, moderate Islam, that there are uh, that 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 America's way of life is like is is not God given rights in a constitution, but this plug and play democracy. And if we just export it to the Middle East and and change Bible verses for Quran verses and English for Arabic, then everybody will be just like us. That that has sort of been our foreign policy post nine eleven to varying degrees under both Bush and Obama has been this view, this sort of progressive view of the Middle East. I think Obama, Bush may have been a small P progressive and Obama a capital P one, but they largely had the same view of the Middle East. Is that, has that played into what you are, the level of persecution that you are describing? Absolutely. I believe the fact that we think if we export our democracy, as you mentioned, that they will take on because it's just a natural thing to right. do is, is our number one fault. They have lived, first of all, Middle East is a tribal area. 
they are not used to having democracy. Um, and the only place that truly, I believe, would understand the value of democracy was Iran in 2009 with the Green Revolution, which we did not have. Which we didn't aid. Exactly, exactly. Uh, this, yes, we failed in the Middle East. More with Juliana Tamarazzi, founder and president of the Iraqi Christian Relief Council, in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Liberals seem to have a tough time handling so much truth all in one place. Stop! 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 It's the Steve Day Show. All right, back here with Juliana Tamarazzi. She is the founder and president of the Iraqi Christian Relief Council. She's also with the Philos Project. We're going to learn more about that here in just a moment. Because I want to take a, I want to step forward now into the future, Juliana, about it, where we go from here in that part of the uh, region of the world, how our audience can help. We'll get to that too. But if, if you, give us an analysis of, of where this is heading, because it, it seems to me sitting from the cheap seats that we invested a decade worth of, of, of blood and treasure into Iraq to create, which will either be um, the, the cornerstone of a caliphate or an Iranian satellite state. And I don't if creating a, if creating an Iranian satellite state is the better case scenario, that's 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 a no win scenario, isn't it? Yes. Um, as far as the caliphate is concerned, uh, when we say we're going to defeat ISIS, I think we're just dreaming because ISIS is a result of an ideology and the ideology is the Islamic State. And it'll just fl- it'll just switch flags. You get rid of their black flag and something else, just like they were a spout off of Al Qaeda and other groups. Something will spout off of them, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. When ISIS came in back into Mosul, uh, there were about a thousand ISIS members that came back to Mosul. There were 20,000 ISIS supporters inside Mosul waiting. So this tells you Unless there's a revolution from within Islam and serious reformation comes from Islam, we as Westerners will not win this war. The other subject you talked about, Iran, that makes me really nervous for us in the West and for Israel. Look, I was born and raised in Iran. I left, I escaped Iran when I was 16 years old because of religious harassment. And I grew up with the rhetoric, death to Israel, death to Iran, uh, America. And I remember uh, in 1979, Khomeini, Ayatollah Khomeini said, I will deliver my revolution to four corners of the world. And with what's happening inside Iraq, uh, with Iranians having so much power in Baghdad, and then now Assad being probably reinstated to reinstated. Now, we, we wanted to topple him four years ago. Now exactly. we need him to topple Islamic State, right? Exactly, exactly. That is a wide open door for uh, like a corridor from Iran right to the west, right in the heart of Jerusalem, which makes me really nervous. If you had a chance to have five minutes with, with Donald Trump as he gets set to take the presidency a week from Friday, what would you tell him? Be um, unapologetic as you are. Um, and you, he, he needs to call it what it is, which means if there is cancer, if I say I have a headache, I'm not going to be remedying my cancer is, is disease. So when we do we things like to, we're going to move the embassy to Jerusalem and then tonight the report is, well, maybe we won't. Is that the sort of uh, weak need 
stuff that in the Middle East they look at and say maybe this guy is just all bluster and he's not really up. He's not up to the task. He needs to remain man of principle. He needs to know who his friends are and who his foes are. He needs to really support Israel through and through because the only democratic nation in the Middle East is Israel. And he needs to strengthen those who will be an ally for Israel, which is the Assyrian Christian community, whether they're in Iraq, whether they're in Syria, whether they're in Lebanon, Maronites in Lebanon. We as Christians, and with the, we have to stand with the Jews, not only theologically, but also middle, um, Israel is westernized, but it's in the heart of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And he needs to truly, Steve, I have to tell you, I think the White House, the State Department, and Pentagon, they need to be educated and re-educated on the culture in the Middle East that we cannot expect them to accept democracy as we understand it here. And we have to be culturally uh, educated and religiously educated with who they are and what uh, what what really uh, makes them You have to accept move. the world for the way it is, not the way yes. you would prefer it to be. Exactly. Uh, it, because that's the magical thinking progressives typically engage in. And, I, and I'm sure there are people listening to us right now saying, listen, I don't want, it's not our foreign policy's job to defend your religion. I think we need to point out this is bigger than that because we're not, it's, we're not just talking about somebody's private religious practices. We're dealing with a region of the world where we have very few friends, wiping out populations who have a similar value system to us from a geopolitical standpoint. That is, that is mind-numbingly stupid, let alone cutting off your nose to spite your face, right? We want as many people with our values and ideals to be living and breeding in that part of the world as we possibly can, don't we? Absolutely. We Christians of the Middle East are the bridge of understanding between the Islamic East and the Christian West. And if you eradicate Christianity from, or the Middle East from Christianity, all you have is a breeding ground for fundamental Islamism. Now, there's, no, there's not a buffer there at all. Tell us about the Philos Project and how our audience can help you guys' efforts. So Philos Project is an organization based in New York that promotes positive Christian engagement in the Middle East. Through Philos Project, we are uh, really single-handedly changing how uh, the, the Christian, uh, American Christians view Israel, and we educate American Christians about their Eastern brothers and sisters from a Christian perspective. And we also get involved geopolitically. For example, the uh, area that has been liberated, called the Nineveh Plain, which is right outside Mosul, uh, that's our ancestral homeland for Assyrians. So Philo's project is very much active in helping create a, a minority um, province for us, for the Turkmen Shiites, for the Yazidis, and we have to strengthen those communities that are there to fight radical Islam in their own land and not allow it to come here. So that's what we do through Philos Project. But humanitarian crisis, as you and I sit here, Steve, is underway. Iraq is extremely cold. There's there's diseases that is running rampant among these refugees that have lived in these camps in northern Iraq for over two years. So through uh, victimsofisis.org, victimsofisis.org, people can truly help from um, basic food, to kerosene for their space heaters and medicine that we there are about 200,000 people that are really in need in northern Iraq 
final words for our audience? We've got about a minute here before we uh, have to let you go. Anything you want them to consider here as we close out this conversation, which I think has been fascinating, heartbreaking, but also very enlightening. Thank you for the opportunity. Real quick, when 9-11 happened, I called my mother and I said, Mom, they have come here. We escaped these people and they're here. Mm. What I ask my fellow Americans is to really say something when they see something. Radicalism does not happen overnight. It happens very slowly. That's number one. So when you do see radicalism happening around you, report it. That's number one. Number two, don't forget about uh, the Christians or just humans in the Middle East, in Iraq especially, that are suffering so much. Visit our website, victimsofisis.org. We're rebuilding the Christian community in northern Iraq through Operation Return to Nineveh. Like us on Facebook, like us on tw- and follow us on Twitter, please. Juliana Temarazzi, this has been uh, a much-needed conversation. Thank you for being with us tonight. You did a great job. Thank you so much. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. There's left, there's right, and then there's right. You've come to the right place. It's the Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. That was quite a conversation we just had with Juliana Tamarazzi, who is the founder and president of the Iraqi Christian Relief Council. Victimsofisis.org is the website, again, if you want to get more information on what uh, they do. Victimsofisis.org. So I, I, I just happened to see while I was talking to Juliana, I, I, every now and then I glanced at the two of you to get your reaction. I, have you guys picked your jaws up off the floor yet after that conversation? Because... Um, she said a lot of things we needed to hear, but um, that conversation was not a warm, fuzzy, Kim. Right. She was brilliant and brave, and I'm grateful that she was here with us. Um, one of the things I found interesting is that she was saying that our government has no clue about the culture in the Middle East. And until they get that clue, there's no way they're going to know how to get move forward. And the whole idea that if you defeat ISIS, and I'm doing that in air quotes, there will be something else springing up because it comes from Islam. Let me, along the lines of what you just said, the whole moving the Israel, the, the, emba- the embassy to Jerusalem is a great example of this. I'm not a diplomat. I don't work at the State Department. I don't work for the intelligence community. I've never had a meeting with Dory Gold and Benjamin Netanyahu. Actually, I've interviewed Dory Gold, but meaning I've never sat down with the brain trust in Tel Aviv to say, hey, you guys tell us if this would help you or not. I guess what I'm trying to say is it might be bad geopolitics to move the embassy there, meaning the the risk-reward might not be a good ratio. I'm not saying that's not the case. I don't know. What I am saying, though, is you are dealing with what we don't have anymore in America, but they still do over there, which is an honor-based culture. If a man is going to make a pronouncement, I'm going to do this, particularly one in power, and you don't follow through and carry through, that is not looked at as pragmatism or utilitarian flexibility or being situationally, ethically enlightened as we think about it in the West. It is looked at over there as weak. It is looked at over there as, eh, all hat and no cattle. That's how they look at it over there. So my point is, if you're not 100% sure you're going to be able to move the embassy to, to Jerusalem or you think it's even a worthwhile move, then say nothing. But Todd, don't threaten it and then not follow through. That is an example 
of their their poli- they, first of all they don't have elected politicians like we do looking at the overnight polling and focus grouping every night. They don't do that. They don't, that's how it operates over there. So don't make don't throw don't rattle sabers unless you're going to follow through. That's an example of what she was talking about. You're of course right, and that's what we we're going to find out very soon on this front and many others if Donald uh, Trump is serious or not. And I really liked your point. Uh, talking about it's not we're not we don't want to just defend them because they're Christians, Steve. We want to defend them because they are people we can legitimately work with. You can in share a, scenario a with that's, them. Yeah, yeah. It's not all. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. You know, it's not. We don't have to just drop bombs even because we disagree. There's a middle ground that would be refreshing. Hour two is next. Listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Government should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 2 of the Steve Dace Show here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Please don't forget we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Well, we enjoyed his time with us so much last week, we brought him back again. Matt Walsh is here from The Blaze. It's good to have you back, my friend. How are you? Very well. Thanks for having me. You've got a piece up at The Blaze. I want to start off with this. Dads, we can't expect our sons to become real men if we don't teach them how. What prompted you to write that at this time, Matt? Well, we know that the uh, assault on masculinity is in, is in full tilt, and it's every, everywhere you turn in our culture. Every time you, you know, turn on the TV or look at your phone or just walk outside your door, there you see the media and academia and Hollywood and corporate America and the government all just waging this full-scale assault on uh, well, it's, it's on our daughters and our sons, but I think it, it particularly on our sons to try to confuse them and to, and to send them into sort of confusion and effeminacy. Um, and recently, there's been just a few examples that caught my eye. We know about the National Geographic uh, cover with the, with the young boy, I think eight or nine years old, who identifies as a girl now, quote unquote, and was put on the cover of a science magazine. And then, uh, but, but even beyond that, we have now two, uh, and I don't usually pay attention to the marketing you know, strategies of makeup companies, but uh, we have two makeup companies, CoverGirl and uh, Maybelline, that have unveiled uh, young men as their spokesmodels, and now they have them traipsing around on TV and in advertisements dolled up in all the makeup, selling, selling makeup to, I, I imagine, a clientele that's still 95% female. Hmm. Um, and so this, again, even though they don't quote-unquote identify as women, it is this trying to blur the lines between masculinity and femininity, and it really has a disorienting effect on our on our uh, on our boys. And we have to be really aware of that and vigilant about it. I want to talk in a moment about why progressivism is so threatened by traditional gender roles uh, and, and masculinity in particular. 
But one of the mystifying things of this gender-bending uh, dynamic that has moved beyond the Ziggy Stardust stuff that, uh, you know, well, you're a millennial. You're, I'm a little bit older than you. But, you know, this was done for, for effect by the likes of Dave, David Bowie when I was a little kid just to make parents nervous and sell rock tickets uh, to concerts. It wasn't a political agenda like it is now. And I am, I am fascinated and mystified, and maybe I should not be mad, and maybe you'll tell me that in a moment. But I am fascinated and mystified that the feminist movement just doesn't look at stuff like this. Like my daughter takes a look, my oldest daughter, my teenage daughter, who's very competitive because she's like her old man. She looks at stuff like like Bruce Jenner trying to become Caitlyn and get on the cover of Vanity Fair and all this stuff. And you know what she says when I get home, when this stuff comes up? She asks me, she goes, you know, do you, are we girls not allowed to just have anything? You guys have to take everything from us? I mean, to me, that would seem to be the right reaction here, wouldn't it? I mean, where is where is this where is the feminist mystique here, so to speak? Why aren't they losing it over seeing guys take their own opportunities and territory away from them? Yeah, that's a really good point, and that's something that I've written about many times. I've wondered the same thing. I think uh, this is an area where you could find some common ground between feminist women and more quote unquote traditional women. Uh, that they should both feel this way. <laughs> but I think what we find, and I've talked about this before, it's an interesting phenomenon in liberalism, that although liberalism tends to be egalitarian, it's actually a very high, you know, there's a, there's a hierarchy to liberalism, and it's strictly enforced. Um, it's sort of a victim hierarchy, and whoever's highest up on, on, on or maybe you look at it as a pyramid, and you know, as you go further up, whoever, who's ever at the top of the pyramid is kind of untouchable. And I think on the victim kind of pyramid of liberalism at the very top are you know lgbtq homosexuals transgenders they're the top of it and whatever they do is okay you cannot touch them you cannot criticize anything they do and below that you have women you know black people but they're below it and and their and their you know wants and desires and their feelings are put below the lgbtq camp that's the only thing that i can that's the only answer i can come to is that the lgbtq xyz uh camp they just run the whole show in liberalism and 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 i think that there are plenty of feminists who feel the way that we're talking about because how could they not mm-hmm. um but they are just afraid to say it and because they know if they do they're going to be shut down in essence what you just said is egalitarian feminism is a scam yeah, well, it, it's I, egalitarianism. In my opinion, is a, is a scam across the board. No, nobody really believes in it; it doesn't exist. Um, but, but yeah, it, it, I think it is a, is, a, is a scam, and especially when feminists are all about and liberals in general are are always talking about appropriation and how you know if you uh, uh, you know if you dress a certain way, you could be appropriating black culture, you're appropriating Native American culture. So they're always using that word, and here we have, and usually it doesn't apply. But here we have a real, honest-to-God example of people appropriating something that doesn't belong to them, men appropriating femininity. And, yeah, feminists are, are, are I, I think they notice it. That's my theory. But they're not going to say anything because they're too afraid. Hmm. What is it about traditional gender roles that, uh, pardon the expression, gets progressives' panties in such a bunch, Matt? What, what is it they're threatened by there? Um, well, their non-gender specific undergarments get into a, a, a bunch. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's, first of all, we have to realize that in liberalism, anything that's 
associated with or connected to um, Christianity, traditional Christian teaching, has to be rejected. Because in the liberal mindset, Christianity is the, is the enemy. It's the ultimate enemy. And so, of course, especially in this culture, quote-unquote traditional Christians are the only ones left, really, uh, representing this traditional gender role dynamic. And so that's one of the reasons. And, and uh, I, I think it's just they, you know, they have a hard time looking deeper into it and seeing how gender roles are actually freeing. They allow men and women to be who they truly are and to find happiness and peace and joy in it. They have trouble seeing that, and all they see is limitation. And if they notice limitation, if they think they're being limited in any way, they react like children do. You know, if you tell a child not to do something, he automatically wants to do it, even if it's going to kill him. You know, you say, don't run in the road. He wants to run in the road all of a sudden, just because you told him not to. Mm-hmm. And so I think liberals react that way. They, any limitation, they automatically want to just do the opposite. And so then they go and they do the opposite, and they don't find happiness. And that's, and that's why, um, you know, we've tried this non-gender role thing for several decades now, and it doesn't appear to be working. Um, you know, they, we know the divorce, divorce rate's pretty high. Fatherless homes, broken homes, and so it doesn't. You know, I, I don't think they, that they've succeeded in creating happier and more equal marriages, but they keep going down that road because just because we've told them not to. Basically, we've we I think we've confused the term equality, Matt. I, I like to tell our audience that equal doesn't mean same. Equality doesn't mean sameness. That, you know, when, when the Bible says a radical statement, even to most of the world in the 21st century, this is a radical statement, let alone thousands of years ago when Moses wrote the words, he created them male and female, he created them. The idea that that was one of the, maybe the first time in all of human history that the origin of femininity had been put on an equal playing field in terms of inherent worth and value with maleness. That it almost never happened before ever. Um right. And, and now what, and, and, but I think what's happened is we are, we are saying that because we are, are of equal value, that means we have the same roles. We have the same responsibilities. We have the same characteristics. Equality and sameness are not the same thing. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. That's why, but in my mind, I, I think because people struggle with nuances like you're talking about, I think we just need to maybe de-emphasize the equality in our vocabulary. There's, there's too much emphasis on it, and people equate equality and sameness, and there's no way of getting around it. So, my mind, you know, in my mind, it, 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 that's not the most important thing in life, especially in, I was thinking about writing an article just based, just about this, that, um, you know, like we're talking about, we, we, we always hear that marriages should be an equal partnership, and mm-hmm. that marriages should be equal. And in a sense, that's true in the sense that you're talking about um but in reality in, in most ways marriages are not equal because the man and the woman are, are different they do different things they excel in different areas and our job in a marriage is to serve the other that's what we're supposed to be doing not worrying about evening the score not always having a running tally like you're doing this i'm doing this let's split it, split it down the middle no, it's we go we go all in as much as we possibly can to serve and lead the other, uh, especially as men. You know that's what we're supposed to do: die for you know die to ourselves as Christ did. Um, Hold it right there. That's a good place to pause. We'll come back in a moment with Matt Walsh from the Blaze talking about real men are needed to raise our sons. But where are the real men? We'll talk about that next. You're listening to Steve Dace. 
When you're upsetting everyone, you know you're doing it right. You are human tennis elbow. You are a pizza burn on the roof of the world's mouth. It's Steve Dace. Back here with Matt Walsh from The Blaze talking about his new column that's up right now. Dads, we can't expect our sons to become real men if we don't teach them how. When I first became a father and my kids got old enough to start asking me questions about what they what they saw when we'd go to the mall or out in public or certain kids acting up or doing things that they weren't allowed to do and i would uh, i I'd, I'd almost instinctively or my wife would bring something to my attention with somebody that we knew and i I'd, I'd instinctively ask the question matt where is the dad because 9 times out of 10 there wasn't one present i don't ask that question anymore because it it you it wasn't too long ago. So I mean, my you know, my oldest is only fifteen. So it's you know it's not like our kids are groaning out of the house. This wasn't you know eons ago. It wasn't too long ago that that was in general a pretty good line of demarcation. But nowadays, you know, I've watched numerous stories about this uh, mental illness, this trans ma- tranny madness, and you see the mom's always the one who does all the talking, and their six year old son wants to be a girl. And I watch these interviews on network TV, and the dad is there sitting there saying not a damn thing okay so it used to be i could say i could say when these issues came up show me where the dad is or isn't and i'll show you the problem now that's not necessarily the case so i agree with you we need real men to teach our sons my question to you is where are the real men (laughs) that's a really good question uh you know there's I, i would like to think there's a reservoir of them somewhere that we can go and tap into but uh, I, I and and I think that's the case. We know that there's a a literal fatherless home epidemic, especially yes. in, especially in the black community, other communities where the father just is not there at all, um, and that is becoming increasingly common in every community, including in white suburban neighborhoods. But yeah, e- even even in families where the dad is there physically, uh, he is not oftentimes often not training and raising his sons to be to be men. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from, you know, where, where, where is the father? The father has to know where to look to, to, to know what a real man does, how a real man operates. So where is the father looking, you know? And uh, so for those of us who have faith, we know that we can look to Christ, and we know that that is the ultimate. It, it, it's, very, it's very sort of convenient to be a Christian, only, only in this sense, I would say, that we have— that, that God became an actual man and, and walked around on earth. And so we can look at him and we have this perfect example right there for us. Um, but if you take that out of it, and if you don't have a faith, you're not grounded in anything, then I think even you become lost. Sure. How, how do you know what a real man does and how he operates? Like I don't, and so then it's hard, it's hard to guide your son. I don't know your background. I've talked openly with the audience about mine. I, I grew up, you know, my mom had me at 15. Uh, my biological didn't bother. Uh, the stepdad she raised me with was very abusive, but you know, he did teach me some valuable lessons. He taught me a work ethic. He taught me accountability that have helped me later on. But when it was time for me to become a father, he was not necessarily the, the best well-rounded example for me to use. So I didn't have one. Uh, I had a faith conversion shortly after becoming a father and Thankfully, um, through church relationships, God seemed to just strategically place men in my life at the right time to sort of help me smooth out those rough edges and to help set the, the better example. But without that, without that infrastructure from the church, I, you know, 
we represent you and I's generation, Generation X and, uh, gen- and the millennial generation, uh, really a pandemic of, of fatherlessness or absent uh, fatherlessness, even when the father's in the home of the last two generations. So we are really bereft of those kinds of examples. Yeah, and I have, uh, I have really the opposite experience, but where I could arrive at the same conclusions. And I feel, and I know that I'm, I, I'm very blessed that I had a dad who's in the home, a very good father uh christian you know went to church with us and raised us in the faith and number one we talk so much about the word privilege that that really nowadays that i realize that actually is a privilege that i had it shouldn't be a privilege but uh, it should just come with the territory but compared to you know how a lot of people are raised i I realize that that's sort of an advantage and i think about even with the dad in the home um i was still especially as a teenager i you know, I still live in the culture. I went to public school, and I became very influenced. And I, and I, I think I was on the precipice of, of kind of going into some really dark places. Um, and I think if I didn't have my dad, if I didn't have a good dad there, would I have fallen into that? And, and I think there's a very good chance that I would have. Hmm. So, you know, wh- whether you grew up without a dad or with one, you know, the fact that you need one in the home is very, is very obvious. But the problem is that in our culture, you know, we can't talk about this as much. We can't talk about the need to have a dad in the home because that's seen as insulting to women. And anytime you get into this conversation, you're going to hear, well, you know, single moms, they, they raise their, they can do a fine job, and they can. It's not an insult against women. But um, because of this competitiveness now, I guess, that you have between men and women, we can't even talk about the need and the, and the, and the positive role that men play in society because it's seen as an attack on women, which I think is pretty absurd. Well, look at the models we get in popular culture. I mean... Um, you know, the, uh, the, the days of the Cosby show and the family ties, I mean, heck nowadays, Bill Cosby's a date rapist. Uh, he's, he's not the guy with the funny sweaters, uh, who's, you know, was the number one TV family dad of all time. So if you look at what poses for masculinity nowadays, usually the dad on television only does the right thing. If mom threatens to withhold sex from him in order to get him to do it or B maleness is just depicted as an upright erogenous zone. Who's incapable of thinking with that without the, uh, uh, or, or only thinks with the head on a southern hemisphere, if you know what I'm saying. Right, and I and I think what you don't see, and this is if I were if I were to say the one thing I the most important thing I learned from my own dad from from observing him, and what you don't see in culture is the man who is who sacrifices, who gives himself, uh, and and that's the role of the man to give himself and to and to keep giving and to keep giving and to sacrifice. The role of the man is to, is to constantly sacrifice, put others before him. Um, and you don't find, yeah, when you look around in pop culture, you look anywhere, you don't find many examples of that. And it is going to be really difficult for kids. How are they, how's a boy supposed to know what that looks like if he doesn't see it, if he doesn't have an example of it? Mm-hmm. And um, so it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a crisis situation. I really believe that. We've got about a minute left. The reaction that you get from readers when you write columns like this, well, it's, it's, I think there's obviously a, 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 you know, a large percentage of people who feel this way, the way we're talking about, and they're just waiting for someone to say it. So there's always that. But then there's a, a, you know, a great number of people who lash out, um, especially on these kinds of topics. They lash out pretty viciously when all you're saying is, is hey, dads are important. And a lot of people take that very personally because I guess it hits too close to home, literally. And um, so... It can be kind of interesting at times. I think because so many of us, sadly, have had a poor experience with our own fathers or lack thereof in the home, 
the assertion that it's important to have hits us there and reminds us of that, and we don't want to admit that hurt. And I think that is, you know, that's 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 one of the things that the gospel helps to 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 solve, to cure, uh, is that guilt, that hurt, uh, and 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 the ability to then heal thyself and then live the life as a well-adjusted adult you were originally created to live. But because that's largely an element absent from our conversations, most people just carry the hurt around with them, Matt, because we don't include the gospel in those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Great stuff, my friend. We'll do this again soon. Thank you for joining us, Matt Walsh from The Blaze. Check out his new piece, Dads. We can't expect our sons to become real men if we don't teach them how. Amen. Good to talk to you, Matt. God bless. We'll have some reaction to what you just heard here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. to define the modern-day New Age America. We're all kind of crazy town banana pants. It's Steve Dace. All right, let's get some reaction to the conversation we just had with Matt Walsh from The Blaze talking about the need for men to model masculinity to their sons. Do we have enough men capable of even doing so? What stood out to you about that conversation, Todd? Well, I know how conscious I am of this, and I have a household of four daughters. So I would uh, imagine—I'll never get to do it, but it would be fascinating on a daily basis to be conscious of what is required in the Christian sense, like he said. We have the example. You don't need to make it up. We we tend to have all kinds of versions. You know, are you supposed to be wearing— you know, flannel or, you know, how you're supposed to dress and things like that. And there are aspects of that. But how Christ-like are you? I know on a, a daily basis, I fail every single day in that regard, hmm. uh, just concerning my own daughters. But I know that I succeed uh, as well, certainly based on what I know they see out in the culture and how I'm not doing that. So uh, he can't stress that enough, and you 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 regularly offer us your testimony, your personal testimony, and on what you learned and what you failed to learn based on your own upbringing. This you 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 just aren't wired to be a good man. No, it's just that simple. And we really, I'm going to grow up. You know, we talk about college. I sowed my oats. I did my thing. But I, I'm going to grow up, and I'm going to get it right. I hear people talk about that on sports radio all the time. You know, you really didn't grow up at all. You're, in many respects, the same fool you ever did. You're just not going to frat parties every night, but you're really making the same kind of foolish mistakes. We have, we, I don't think we have a lot of men in our culture. I think we have a lot of males. I, I think we have a lot of males that are capable of procreating, but we don't have a lot of men. And one of the things I've said to my son Noah, because it scares me to death how much, even I see it even with him even more than I did with the girls when they were younger. Like they they needed they needed daddy's affirmation. They needed daddy to tell them that they were pretty, that they were smart. You know, they needed that, and they still do. But I mean, I could see that almost right away. He needs a level of affirmation different than them, and and almost and more visceral. I mean, he needs an existential level of affirmation for me. That and it frightens me at times how much he really relies on me to um, to affirm him, to teach him. 
because I'm nobody's more 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 aware of my own frailties and failures than I because I carry them with me all of the time. And one of the things I've I've tried to communicate with him because his personality is different than mine. Our interests are very much the same. He is the spitting image of me at that age, just with lighter hair. I mean, it's exactly what I look like at that age. But our personalities are different. He's more like his mom. He has a softer heart than I do. He naturally cares about people more than I do. And I've and and I think you know he struggles well to think that. I have to do exactly what dad does or be exactly what he is to be a man. And I have had to tell him already, even though he's going to be just 10 next month. Noah, you don't have to have the same personality I have to be a real man. That's not what it's about. You know, and, 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 you know, God may have a calling on your life that requires you to be more empathetic and to have a softer heart than I, than I'm capable of having, or frankly, maybe am permitted to have in some cases with what I have to do for a living. And that's not because that's not what it's about. It's about, are you willing to own your mistakes? Are you willing to sacrifice yourself for those that you love? Are you willing to provide for yourself and others? Do you have character? Do you have integrity? It's not about a certain persona. It's not about a certain identity. That's not what it's about, Kim. Right. You know, one of the things you guys were talking about is that, um, you know, I want to say to the, the progressives and the and the, the feminists out there that it is not insulting to say, it's not insulting to women to say that children do better with a mom and dad in the home. I think, you know, you can make the biblical argument, but you can also make the data. You know, you can just look to the science that they so much um, uphold, or they say they do. I mean, even the New York Times, you know, they, they talk about a Princeton study that says that boys raised apart from their fathers are two to three times more likely to end up in jail before, before they reach 30, or that girls, if their fathers have disappeared, they're five more times likely to end up pregnant as teenagers than the peers were raised with fathers in the home. So, you know, I don't find it insulting. I wish they didn't to embrace this notion that to raise um, balanced and healthy children that we have the, we have this uh, relationship with our husbands that is symbiotic that it that we need each other we are equal but not the same and it's beautiful how much of the resistance to what you just said stems from hurt because i was denied that growing up and you and and your assertion that that was needed is a reminder to me that i was denied that how much of it is ideological or worldview resistance to those sorts of traditional ideologies. I don't know the answer Probably to that. Probably depends on a case-by-case -case basis. Mm -hmm. And that's why I asked that question. We can't know. We can't. That's why it is important to get to know the people whose minds you want to change. Because they may have beliefs different than yours, not because they are hostile or an an anathema to your values, but because they're hurt. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. He's trying to keep us all together because, well, the liberals do it. See what you call insanity? We call solidarity. This is Steve Dace. All right, I want some credit. I've shown an amazing amount of restraint. It's January 10th, and this is the first time this year we're going to discuss polls. Yeah. <laughs> what? Why, Why do you get points? Because we only did this show every day for a year. 
Uh, but no, we're not talking about polls for the 2020 Democratic nominee or Trump via VM, vis-a-vis whoever their mystery opponent will be. We'll get into I'd that. I'd be out the door. You know I would yeah, if I know. we started there. Yeah, that's, that's coming down the pike years from now. Not, that's not what I'm talking about. Gallup has just published a poll on Obama. And it's Can you a, remind us what you think about Gallup relative to other polls? Well, they're the granddaddy of all polls. What I what I, I mean, all of our almost all of our modern polling methodology originates with Gallup. Okay, and the thing I like about Gallup is when they get stuff wrong, they have been willing to admit it. Like they said before the start of the primary cycle last year, that they weren't going to do tracking of the of the two party primaries anymore because they they thought the the electorate was too unstable, too many candidates on both sides. Um, and, and they didn't trust their methodology to turn out right. I, you know, making mistakes is not what causes you to lose credibility. It is not acknowledging them when you do that does. Would we all agree to that? It's yes. the cover-up. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Nixon. It's never the crime but the cover-up. Right. Okay. Yeah, one always, one's often wondered if Richard Nixon had just come out the day after and said, listen, man, I sent these stupid plumbers in there trying to figure out how I could beat George McGovern. It was dumb. I'll own it. We would have never found out about the, the recordings in the White House, right? Never been a night of the long knives. Never a Saturday night massacre. Maybe history would have been totally different. Okay. Um, or maybe not. Maybe he would have been out, ousted the next day. Who knows? I wasn't alive back then. But we do know that whatever he did after that happened, after the plumbers were exposed, certainly made matters worse, did it not? Yes. This is a poll asking the American people where they think Barack Obama has made progress during his presidency in 19 areas. Only in 14, I'm sorry, only in five of the 19 areas do people think that they have made progress since Obama took over. Have you seen this polling? I yes. Hold it up. This is fascinating. Particularly when you look at the areas. Also because it doesn't reflect in his personal polling. Yes. Healthcare, I guess we're going to count that as a place where we made progress, even though it's a net zero. So we didn't lose any ground, so that's one of the five areas. There it's a win. It's a win to tie. Gallup's calling it a win, even though he it's a net zero. Yes, I, we're grading on a curve. Apparently, all right. Um, he was plus six on gain ground on the economy, which, considering his, he likes to brag about a recovery, is not good either. He's plus ten on gained ground on climate change. He's plus. This one is mystifying to me. I, I This one, to me, there's more evidence that he gained ground on the economy than this. Plus 23 on energy. Where's that from? Do you, does anybody know where that's from? No idea. Let me tell you where it's from. Gas was 350 a gallon a couple of years ago, and now it's, a, it's 250. That's how most people measure that, okay? That's where it's from. Gas prices are reasonable now. They're not as cheap as they were before he took over, but they're much more reasonable than they were you know, midway through his first term. So that, that I'm, co- I'm convinced that's where that's that from. That doesn't even make sense when you think that most of the time the liberals who would be 
polled in this would not even care, wouldn't want the gas thing. Well, they're not, I mean, ju- they're not just polling liberals. Yeah, they would want solar and they would want wind. Right. And they would, you know, that's what we're talking about. And and maybe, and so maybe you, get a, you get a mixture of liberals who see, see it that way yeah. and a mixture of everyday Americans who are like gas is affordable, so the energy is good. So he's plus 23 on that. That to me, I think there's a much, I mean, I don't think his recovery is great. But I think there's there's more uh, there, the economy. He's, he we are stronger economically than we are on energy policy. Anybody want to debate me on that? That to me, I I, I find that mystifying. I mean, I wouldn't give him a plus twenty three on the economy either, but I wouldn't give him plus twenty three on energy. The number one area where people see that we have made progress: the rainbow jihad. Plus fifty two on the rainbow jihad. So I have no idea what the turnout the vote effort is for those who want and I mean if you just take areas where he's out of single digits you're on climate change solar wind power and the rainbow jihad. I have I have no idea what the get out the vote effort is what the with the total demographic of voters are who those are the three issues they go to the polls predominantly fixated on. But my guess is they live in less than 15% of America's counties because that's how many Hillary Clinton won in the last election. And no wonder they lost. No wonder they lost. No wonder, beyond just his, he's li- his own likable persona, um, ab- ability to communicate, that they ha- their party has been decimated to the tune of 900 lost seats across the country since he took over in 2008. And they are at their lowest levels as a party right now since before the Great Depression. Here's why. That tells, that tells you right there, when you remove his personality and the rest of these guys have to just run on the, on the issues, that tells you the limited amount of people. Think about this, folks. You want some optimism? Think about all the areas progressives dominate in pop culture, in academia, in the media itself. And still... The amount of the electorate that responds to rainbow jihad, wind, solar power, and global warming as their top issue touchstones is a sliver of the American people. Think about that for a second. But these numbers everywhere else, minus 36 on the federal debt, minus 35 on crime, minus 34 on income inequality, minus 27 on race relations, minus 22 on Iraq, minus 21 on terrorism, minus 19 on U.S. position in the world, minus 18 on immigration, minus 12 on Afghanistan, minus 11 on taxes, minus 9 on national defense, minus 8 on education, minus 7 on uh, black America. Black America gives a a minus seven and that minus 27 i think you said on race relations yes who would have guessed that in a million years eight years ago this i think says something else to us i want to discuss that here in a moment you're listening to steve dace Trying to trick the libs with the truth. Hey, I'm not falling for that. It's Steve Dace. So these numbers are astonishing. And if you want to apply a political analysis to this, 
So how do we reconcile? Barack Obama was elected to the presidency twice. Despite these numbers. On issues that really matter to most Americans. Minus eight on education. The answer is what we pointed out a few minutes ago. The way that his party has been utterly annihilated nationwide. That outside of California and New York, well, outside of the East Coast, the fringes of the East Coast and the West Coast, there isn't a Democratic Party in America, guys. There just isn't. When you win less than 15% of counties in America, you are not a national party. I'm sorry, you're not. You're just not. This is the power of persona. The power of celebrity. I'm just going to tell you this right now. There is no way he would have been reelected if he was white. He needed the narrative of, the, of, of, of breaking the glass ceiling for you to give this agenda another chance. There's simply no way. No, way. no one could get elected this way. No one could. It is, this is the power of persona. He's likable. And even though we joke about the malaprompts and the need of the teleprompter, he can command a camera. And a lot of us wanted to move into a post-racial America. But if you remove those things and he has to run on his record, you could not get elected anywhere in America to a meaningful position with these kinds of numbers. You simply could not. That is a big, that is a major problem for the Democratic Party. Because they, they, they tried to come back with in this last election, all right, we're going to transcend these terrible numbers by running the first woman. And you'll all go back to 2008 and you'll forget about their crazy, nutty, leftist ideology and you'll vote for them based on their gender because you want to shatter that glass ceiling as well. And it didn't work. So they've they they they've they've used that they've played that card now already. I don't know what card they play next. They're going to have to start winning some arguments on some issues. And no, winning an argument isn't I call you a racist, misogynist, a xenophobic, homophobe. Really winning some arguments and showing some real results. You're listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 3 of the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. 
Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. So what could day one of a Trump presidency look like a week from Friday? That's coming up on January the 20th. Interesting article from The Hill. So this is, uh, this is more of a mainstream media perspective on this question, but it's got some interesting information that you might find noteworthy. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on in this hour. But first, it's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. Yes, it is three questions when, well, normally our producer Aaron gets to take control of the show for at least a segment and to set the agenda around here by asking the questions and compelling us to answer them, provided he's willing to answer the same ones himself. But since he's off on his little Harry Potter hodge, uh, nothing says millennial quite like that. He's off on his little snowflake uh, vacation. Uh, Kim is here this week filling in. And so, Kim, you are. I, I, you're going to do the three questions. I got some reaction from people who liked the questions that you asked. Did they? Last night. Yeah. So there's, 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 there's some expectations on you now. Awesome. Okay. Well, the first question is, um, you know, my husband and I have been um, together almost 30 years. So I'm going back to the time when you guys were just dating your wives or before, you know, obviously you were married. Was there any behavior, any activity that you did then on your very best behavior that you're not doing anymore? Oh boy, I think my wife would tell you I'm my behavior is a lot better Ooh, there uh, than, you go. Than, it, than it was back then. Um, I I was probably more cuddly back then uh, than um, I am now, um, and I just it could very well just be the uh, uh, curmudgeonly nature of of getting older. So. I might have been uh, more cuddly back then. We also didn't have kids, you know, who also wanted to cuddle and everything else. Like, and, and they're getting a little bit older now, but uh, they, they pretty much had all the cuddle space in our house for the last, you know, 10 to 12 years. So, you know, th- there, there, was a, uh, there was a buffer in there. But other than that, I think, you know, um, as I've said before, you know, with my own uh, testimony, my wife is fond of saying she's on her second marriage. It just so happens the guy had the, <laughs> the same, same name guy. both times. So <laughs> nice. I think she would probably say that, though my behavior is not perfect, believe me, I, I right. can, uh, around the house, I mean, I'm human, I, c- I can show my rear end with the best of them, okay? But I think by and large, she would say my behavior is better than it was back then. I think I, for a very narrow window... I may have tried to be a little tidier than I am now. I'm not. I'm in no way a slob, but I also am in no way a neat freak. So I, I think I probably, you know, had had things folded. There weren't some obscure clothing piles around, <laughs> things of that nature. But uh, looking back on that, I, honestly, I was very conscious of keeping it real because right. it, it it was it felt special from the get go. And I know I'm a handful. I, I wanted her to see the whole package right out of the gate, and so she knew what she was getting. Well, for me, um, I was a sprinter in high school, and my husband's a long-distance guy. I mean, he even ran cross-country for Iowa, uh, the University of Iowa. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if we ran together? 
It was a disaster, absolute disaster. Evidently, for him or for you? For me. Evidently, you don't stop and get your Kleenex out and blow your nose. I mean, I'd be like, (laughs) every few you know feet. Oh, I gotta blow my nose, and he'd be like, No, this is how you do it. And then he would do the farmer thing, and I'm like, That's not happening for anybody. So it was. Yeah, my wife loves the farmer blow. I wish I could do it, but I cannot. You know, it ends up on your shoe or something. It's terrible. Okay, second question. Um, if if you still use CDs, I don't know if you guys do, but if we went to your house, what would be playing on your CD? What would you be listening to? Well, if you go to our house, it's rare you're going to hear CDs, uh, unless it's just something that um, is not readily available. You know, so um, if, if music at our house would be Pandora or Spotify. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we have you know the the TVs with the apps, so a lot of times we'll have it um, either on a mobile device or on the television, going through the uh, uh, the Bose system upstairs or the the um, system I have downstairs in the man cave uh, for movie watching. Um, but what would you listen to? And it would be an eclectic type of music. Uh, you know, you might hear. You know, I've got, you know, and my, my, our, our oldest daughter, you know, she likes some of the contemporary music, but she likes a lot of the same kind of music her old man does because that's what she grew up listening to when she was a kid. So you might hear uh, a Pandora channel that might be, a, you know, an Eagles mix. So it might have the, the Eagles might be the headline band, but similar acts and bands from that era. Uh, it could be a Who mix, uh, could be a uh, contemporary Christian music channel. You know, like a casting crowns or a third day or something like that. So, and it, it could it could also be prime country from Sirius XM. You could hear that uh, as well. So, you could hear uh, numerous different things. Now, if you've been around our if you had been around our house for the last month and a half, all you would have heard was Christmas music. All right, because right. we are all totally into that. <laughs> all right, but other than that time of year, it will vary. Uh, greatly on a given day. It's funny you ask that because we were just taking down the Christmas decorations this week and putting everything back, and that included the CDs. And Jill looked at me like, "Should we even put these back out? They're the CDs that from our old collection, and we rarely play them. And it's not because we like music. I just think the rhythm of our household and the coming and the going and the, my wife works at home, so it you know it just we can't turn it into a rock and roll concert uh, either. But it would be you know, I would be playing things like. You know, you too. She would be playing things like uh, Gin Blossoms. I'd imagine or those Bo are Deans. all things you could hear at our house as well. Yep, Spe- especially you, uh, you too. And you mentioned Gin Blossoms. They had one great album in the 1990s, but like every song on that album is really good. So yeah, you could hear that at our house too. And for me, um, I would have Lyle Lovett. I think he's no, he's brilliant. <laughs> and then uh, Dwight Yoakam. Would be the the two that would be uh, like kind of my go to. A uh, couple of Dwight Yoakam songs are great. Fast as you is a great. That's a great country song. That's Dwight Yoakam, right? I don't know. Yeah, that's a, that's a great that's a great country song. Fast as you by Dwight Yoakam is a phenomenal country song. Okay, we're gonna go political. Name the first person that you actually voted for for president. Not the first person that actually won mm-hmm. that you voted, but the first person. That you voted for uh, first election I was eligible to vote in for president was 1992 and I was uh, involved with college Republicans on campus at Michigan State University well Steve you're a big Michigan fan and I was when I was a student at Michigan State University as well that's why I made so many friends uh, but uh, I was involved in college Republicans there I remember the night before the election doing campus-wide uh, lit drops 
for Bush Quail. Um, we had one of the presidential debates in that cycle was there at Michigan State University. So I remember being out front uh, for that. I heard I heard an interview with George Stephanopoulos when he was uh, Bill Clinton's uh, campaign manager or advisor or something back then, uh, talking about how public public morality trumps private behavior. When he was asked a question about all of Bill Clinton's various peccadillos and scandals, I heard that line. So I, I, that's always stuck with me, and it, especially when later on it, his 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 p- private morality darn near cost him his presidency. Uh, but uh, Bush in nineteen ninety two, that was the first candidate for president I was ever able to vote for. Yeah, the same election. We're talking Bush Clinton. Uh, yes, I I, uh, I know I've said this publicly, but it might have been social media before. I, I darn said- near voted for Perot. Just to be different, but I voted for Bush. Uh, I voted for Bill Clinton. Uh, my my world. View, I I was a Christian. I I was uh, right of center. Uh, but George, much like we talk about now, George George Bush very much frustrated me. Clinton was the leader of the Democratic Leadership uh, Council, which was a a more conservative uh, wing of the uh, party then, and uh, it. Yeah, I I'll say it in my what however old I was, eight, 20 maybe that you know it it kind of felt right. Let's give this uh, guy a chance because what I was getting from the right was disappointing. So I have to go back further than that. Obviously, um, I have to go back to 1980. So the person I voted for, along with five million, are you really that much older than us? I am old. I didn't realize you were. I thought you were roughly the same age. Oh as no, us. I'm elderly. Because you don't look like you're 12 years older than <laughs> us. She doesn't look like she's 12 years older than not us. Not a day. How, how oh, did I, bless how did, your heart. How did I not know this all this time? When you told me 1980, I'm like, you couldn't vote in 1980. It's her, it's her swagger, Steve. <laughs> okay, so I was one of five million seven hundred thousand people who voted for John Anderson. Oh. He was the independent from Illinois. Yeah. Yeah. Liberal Republican. Yeah. You've always been you, haven't you? I have been me. Except he was a liberal Republican. I'm not. He I'm, specifically ran because he thought Reagan was too conservative. He was trying to cost him the election. I'm not saying I'm proud of it. All I'm right. saying I, that's okay. what it was. All right. Okay. We got that out. That's good. <laughs> More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. He's standing up for your rights and telling you the way it is. This man is an American hero. Steve Dace. I have something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. See, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We got to get some buzz going. And this is the Nightly Buzz, where we go back, take a look at some of the headlines that we may have missed from uh, earlier in the evening, because not even us can cover everything in a three-hour show, especially given how long it takes me to make even one single point. So this is what else has been trending on social media or at your water cooler throughout the course of the day. We've got those headlines. Uh, Aaron is gone, so I've got the headlines. And now you guys, uh, with maybe a little help from yours truly, will also have the hot takes, beginning with this story. Bruce Jenner reportedly unhappy with the lack of immediate with the lack of media attention he received in 2016 has decided that a new publicity stunt will be his new year's resolution for 2017 because psychiatric counseling just doesn't pay the bills he's planning to pose nude in 2017 to get himself back in the spotlight seemingly i'm guessing 
you're going to need a long lens. But your comments, your thoughts, Bruce Jenner posing nude as Caitlyn Jenner Kim. No. <laughs> She's good at that. That's it. That's no. That's about the best take there is, Todd, unless you have something else to add. He's mentally ill. Would one of his friends please help him? I mean that in all earnestness. Please. This is this is a train wreck. France is going to become the 52nd nation to ban spanking inside the home. A new law that uh, precludes parents from using, quote, cruel, degrading, or humiliating, unquote, forms of punishment. The ban reportedly will be read at civil weddings and will be included in documents pertaining to the family. Dr. Giles Lazimi, who heads an anti-spanking campaign in France, says, quote, this law is a very strong symbolic act. To make parents understand just how all violence can be harmful for the child, above all, it removes the notion of a threshold. There is no small or big violence. There is only violence, full stop, unquote. It's an interesting change, considering some of the stats coming out of French society. A recent poll there found 85% of French parents smack their kids, and that 70% oppose a total ban on spanking. So clearly the population takes somewhat of a different view from that of the government, Todd. Well, there is a part of France uh, that just will not go. You know, in America, we've got gel just to limit our lives with cigarettes. I mean, uh, these people will tip back a uh, glass of wine with their breakfast, breakfast, and they'll smoke heater after heater. So there is a part of them that, despite what we think about crazy French society, that just, just holds on to some sense of, you know, I don't give a rip normalcy. Furthermore, nothing says civic wedding ceremony like vows that include anti-spanking ordinances, you know? That's that's sexy. Where do you, we don't even know if they're going to have children, but they're going to go ahead and tell them that when you do, you cannot do this. But why would he call it symbolic? Is it because he knows 70% say, you know, they don't agree I think with he it? calls it symbolic because um, the idea... he. The, the moral he's drawing a moral equivalency here between all violence that right. all violence is bad right uh not and it, it just the act in and of itself is a bad thing regardless for the reason in which it is being acted upon and if, if you're passing legislation that is just symbolic you're not legislating you're just trolling nice point yeah i mean uh, it, is there any in, in case that here to be made that we are evolved and enlightened beyond the point of having to spank our children anymore? No. No. Yeah, I agree with you guys. I just, I just thought somebody should at least ask the question to see if there's something we're missing. You know, I, I, think, um, I think I spanked Anna like twice at a young age for, th- some, for things that were really, really bad and then never really had to do it ever again. Same thing with Zoe, same thing with Noah. Um, But there had to be a line drawn to show that some things just are not acceptable and there is a level of punishment that goes along with those things in order to send that message. And with spanking, we don't need to, what we don't need is a list. When is it appropriate? Well, the only, the most important thing about spanking is are you in control? If you're flying off the handle and do it because you're mad, that's not the right time. That, yeah, that's agreed. the problem. And I mean, right. I grew up in a home where I, 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 I lived those distinctions. I, I lived them constantly. So, right. yeah, I, I, I completely understand that. Climatologist Dr. Judith Curry 
told Fox News host Tucker Carlson last night that she, or, or, I'm sorry, on Friday night, uh, she was so sick of politicization of global warming in academia, she resigned from a tenured position at Georgia Tech University. Quote, I've been vilified by some of my colleagues who are activists and don't like anybody challenging their big story, Curry said. I walk around with knives sticking out of my back. In the university environment, I felt like I was just beating my head against the wall. Obviously, you give up a tenured you know, position at a university, a guaranteed paycheck, this, that, I think that probably speaks volumes to your frustration level. Curry is a skeptic that uh, humans are causing catastrophic global warming. She announced uh, today she was retiring from academic life to focus more on her own climate analytics, uh, an- analytics business and blogging. A big reason she decided to live, she decided to leave though, had to do with the craziness. Those are her words of of so-called climate science, Kim. Well, you know, the interesting thing is that she. Is, I mean, this is not just somebody who you know studies climate um, climate change. She she was a chair, former chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Science at the Georgia Institute of Technology. I mean, this is a big deal that she would give up that tenured position, that guaranteed salary for life. I mean, that's tremendous. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing more of her work. By craziness, my interpretation would be just cultish thinking. Right. It's impossible to engage in dialogue uh, because what you end up doing is end up being uh, both personally and professionally diminished. I've been there myself within the journalism world. I can only imagine what it's like there. All right, so let me, again, I'm, this is the second time in a row. I'm just going to play devil's advocate here, okay? Because I don't want us to become our own echo chamber. We just sit around in a circular fashion and slap each other on the back and, and give self-congratulatory helmet stickers and talk about how we like and pre- appreciate the smell of one another's flatulence, okay? What about the argument, well, would you put somebody on staff? Should we give tenure to somebody who doesn't believe that the earth is round, who doesn't believe in gravity? This is, quote, settled science, unquote, right? That's the other side's argument, right? We wouldn't want, we wouldn't want to pay for our kids to learn science at $300 or $500 a credit hour from somebody who thought the earth was flat, would we? The, the very comment that earth, um, science is settled is not scientific, you, you, there is no way. So I, I reject that notion completely that it is settled science. That's That drives me yeah, crazy. Michael Mann's hockey stick has been uh, disabused uh, by um, Mark Stein, and he's been you know prosecuted in Canada for that. This is a bullying tactic that it they're is. using. It isn't science. So you're right, Steve, with your initial premise, but that's not what's going on here. It, it does seem interesting that the, the the use of the language settled science, because we do have a scientific method, and when something meets the thresholds of that method, it becomes law, right? The laws of physics, the laws of various forms of science. So it would just seem you wouldn't have to create a new term if if, if this was a phenomenon that yes. passed through the scientific method, then it would be scientific law, like a gravity, like physics, like motion. Like You, know, you see where I'm going with this? Yes, and nope. we're constantly observing. More in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. Listening to it will make you feel American. Glory, glory, hallelujah. It's the Steve Day Show. All 
right, back here with more on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. So a week from Friday, Donald Trump will take the oath of office. That still sounds weird to hear, let alone to say. But he will be the next president of the United States. What could he do day one? What could he do day one that would radically alter the direction of the country? And and could he do anything day one? The Hill... Uh, And again, this is from a mainstream media perspective, but uh, one of the writers for this story, Jonathan Easley, is somebody I've worked with in the past, and it seems to be a good reporter. So I thought it'd be interesting to take a look at their perspective on exactly what Trump could do day one of his presidency. Let's do this issue by issue on several fronts. Let's start with immigration. Um, President Obama has already directed the Department of Homeland Security to put its, quote, highest priority, unquote, on deporting convicted criminals and gang members, but presidents have broad authority under the law on immigration enforcement. And Trump could order the agency to go even further than the guidelines Obama laid out in 2014. He could also do away with what is often referred to as DACA, that's Obama's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, which more than 700,000 illegal aliens have used to live and work in the U.S. without fear of deportation. Trump could get rid of that on day one. Um, But the president-elect has come under pressure from advocates to keep the program, of course, including Obama himself. Why his opinion would be relevant, what he could do, I have no idea. He could also issue directives that take aim at so-called sanctuary cities, which do not aid federal authorities in enforcing immigration law. He could order work to begin on a massive wall on the Mexican border, but he would likely need Congress's cooperation to complete both of those tasks in the end. All right, so let's start there with immigration. Your thoughts on what day one of a Trump administration could look like. Do you think we'll see any of those things? Day one, day two, or in the first even 100 days? Kim. Well, first I want to say, um, I think most people, even the liberals, have no idea that Obama actually has deported the most people, I don't even know, all the way back to Bush. I mean, he has actually deported a lot of illegal immigrants. Um what I think he could do, I like the idea of the sanctuary cities. The wall, of course, they're saying that all we need is to have funding because there is already legislation in place that just has not been funded. So um, those are easy things to do. I prefer the sanctuary cities and, um, and of course, the wall because that's a campaign promise. Do I think those things are going to get done? No. Todd? I, I don't think right out of the gate the wall is going to be done. Trump is going to pick his spot, and I don't think his advisors are going to rush him out of the gate on that. But sanctuary cities, to me, is one worth fighting right off the bat. And as I've said before, he should not be just having one major issue at a time so everybody can pile on. He should pick three, four, five major issues on immigration and other things. They're not all going to get through, but some will. And this is one worth fighting on. Kate Steinle and many others deserve it. Let's go to the environment next. Trump has promised to approve the Dakota Access and Keystone XL pipelines on his first day in office and to cancel any climate-related payments to the U.N., putting that money instead toward domestic infrastructure projects. Unleashing the coal industry and rolling back Obama's energy regulations will be another major priority for Trump. 
That could mean lifting moratoriums on new leases for coal mines on federal land in the West and eliminating new regulations on mountaintop mining out East. Trump is also likely to reverse White House guidance provided under the National Environmental Policy Act that requires government officials to consider climate change and other environmental effects when approving oil and gas projects. Conservatives say that guidance has been a magnet for lawsuits that have stalled new energy-related projects. Trump could also look to flex his muscle on policies that apply to agencies directly under his control, such as Obama's executive actions requiring federal agencies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and prepare for the effects of climate change. He could also remove solar panels at the White House and on military bases. Reversing most of Obama's other major energy and environmental policies, including rules on clean power and water, fracking on federal land, oil and gas drilling, and offshore drilling, are likely to be longer-term projects for the administration. Todd? He should do most of these things. His polling shows Americans are interested in prioritizing the environment are very low, which is not to say we should be pillaging. He should make sure he has very visual uh, folks on his staff that are conservation-oriented but who do not drink the Kool-Aid. He should do a lot of these things with their help. I think he's Do you think he will? Pardon me. I'm sorry. Do you think he will? Uh, Yes, I actually do. You do? Okay. Kim? Well, what I would hope is that he would be a good steward, right? And a lot of these things I think he actually will do. We'll look at health care, trade, and lobbying when we come back. You're listening to Steve Dace. If you believe in lots of free handouts, this is probably not your show. What is it? Do you want more money? It's the Steve Day Show. Taking a look at what day one of a Trump administration a week from Friday on January 20th after he takes the oath of office. What it could look like on a slew of issues. On immigration, sounded like, um, Todd, you were more optimistic that he would actually do the things that are listed here than Kim was. Am I correct on that? I do. It's smart economically, and I think it's also smart politically. Uh, on the environment, uh, you both seemed optimistic that he would do most of the things that were detailed in this report, correct? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Optimism Except from both of you. Except for that fracking issue. I don't think he's going to get involved in that. But. All right, let's go to lobbying. Truck, Trump could enact his proposed lobbying ban on day one. Part of his campaign promised to, quote, drain the swamp in Washington. The policies would prevent anyone who accepts a political appointment in the Trump administration from registering as a lobbyist within five years of leaving office. Appointees would also be permanently barred from lobbying for foreign governments. By enacting, by enacting such a policy at the start of his term, Trump would be taking a page out of Obama's playbook. After entering the White House in 2009, the president slapped a two-year lobbying ban on officials who left his administration. The Trump team has not said whether it plans to keep other Obama lobbying policies, including one that bars officials from working on issues they lobbied on before joining the administration. Now, skeptics on both sides of these policies have questioned their effectiveness. They worry the bans will drive lobbying activity further underground as former officials seek to influence the administration and members of Congress without officially registering as lobbyists. Todd. Well, listen, 
we're not supposed to sit around just being a bunch of philosopher kings. Not only do I d disagree with the effectiveness of this, in principle, this is like campaign funding and, and what, how much corporations should or should not be allowed to give. Listen, the problem isn't that we have lobbyists. The, the problem is that we are broken and a fallen people in this aspect and every other realm. I don't, this, singling this out, it, it does not strike me as fundamentally democratic. Now, are there specific abuses where you can, you know, put up bumpers and help keep things healthier? I'm willing to listen to that conversation, uh, but I, I, I'm skeptical of this, of this in principle because I think it fails on two measures. It, I don't think it's really going to work, and I think philosophically it's, it's problematic. Are, would you be of the mindset that not, you mentioned on campaign funding? I'm of the mindset you, can, you should be able to give anybody to anybody you want, whenever you want, but it goes public instantly yes, on the full internet. Full disclosure is right huge. Away. You are exactly right, right. away. So why don't we just say you can go lobby whenever you want. You wear a wire the entire time. Everything's recorded. Conversations are, there banked on, are then banked on the internet. People can go online and listen to what you said in every single conversation, every, every single meeting you had with every single legislator, et cetera. Why don't we just do that? I think it's also un-American to wire people 24-7. You do? <laughs> yes. Really? <laughs> yeah. These I, people too? Yeah, these people too. I okay. wouldn't want them wired, but I would want it disclosed that they're having these meetings and this is the the topics of conversation that we're trying to influence because we want... You know, I don't know. Some I don't know. I think when it, I think I think when it, you know this isn't search and seizure. You are appealing to one of my employees to take money from me. You're damn right. I got it. I got a right to know what's going on in there. This is not the police doing an illegal search and seizure of your whereabouts. You have knowingly taken a job to lobby my employees as a taxpayer to take money from me. You're damn right. I have a right to know what was said in those conversations at all times, whenever I damn well choose. I'm the one paying the bills around here. That's the way it works, folks. Yeah. yeah. And most of those people are not your employees. Don't take the job. Who the the politicians aren't? Well, if you're talking like Grassley, yeah. But if you're talking about somebody from a different state, that's not your. That's sure, they are. They're federal offices. You bet they are. Senators are. That, they're, we're they're, talking about representative. Uh, those thing. are absolutely federal. About. You mean so? You mean if if it's if it's if it's down to the last vote in Congress for Obamacare, the guy who represents the third district of Montana is the deciding vote. He doesn't represent me because I have to live under his vote, Kim. Even though he's not in my district, that's the way it is. That now. is, that, that, and that—that's the way that it is, and that's yeah. exactly why, to me, you put a leash on all of these people. You damn right, I deserve to know. Who? Why do I deserve? Because I'm paying the bills. Well, but that's with, why I deserve to know. As with the Republicans' ethics snafu last week, if if your starter is. We're going to wiretap you for life, basically. Yeah, not going anywhere. Uh, I think this would absolutely... You want a populist uprising? This would... You want to see populist zeal? You thought you had populist zeal before. Could you imagine what Trump's crowds would do <laughs> if this was proposed? There'd be, there would be spontaneous orgasmic behavior happening out there in the in, within the throng in those auditoriums. Are you, mean, Are you gonna, channeling your inner Steve Bannon we're, right we're, now? We're going to tether those guys? <laughs> this is different. They are No, first of all, they're not conscripted into this service. They volunteer for it. They took the job. The job is you are lobbying my employees to take my money away from me. That is the job. I therefore have every right to know what was going on in those conversations. Every right. Because you're taking my money from me. Whose money is it? Mine. You're taking my money from me. Whoever writes the checks is the boss. Constant, what came before the Constitution? First words of the Constitution are what? What are the first words? We the people. 
So the, the Constitution is for the people, not the people for the Constitution. It's like the, the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Let's not get it backwards here. All right? Constitution's for us, not us for it. Okay? You said they're lobbying your employee. Why doesn't your employee just tell you what was said? Because you don't trust human nature like that, do you? Do you trust <laughs> human nature like that? Hey, if you want an uprising, the, the easier way to do it is just change the tax withholding. Every time, well, I'm, that's, right? This is something I've argued for okay, 10 years. Okay, that is going to be a game changer no, nobody, right there. There's no, I, I, that's the, if I was potentate for a day, that is the number one thing I would do. Yes. Number one thing is you have to write that check yourself. And if you want to see the size and scope of government limited as drastically as you can say John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt, that would, that do, would it. do it. If I had to write that check myself so that money was once in my pocket and then it is taken away, lo and behold, we discover all kinds of Barry that's, Goldwaters out there. That's where you start. Then maybe see, we'll talk about the wiretap. Exactly. Thank you, Todd. On <laughs> <laughs> trade. Trump could do two things on his first day in office to satisfy supporters. After his, uh, who are frustrated with America's overseas trade agreements, he could move forward with his plan to renegotiate or withdraw from NAFTA. Um, and uh, the same with TPP. Do you think we'll see either of those things? TPP, by the way, has not been ratified yet by Congress, but he could just essentially nullify it by saying, "I'm I'm taking it off the table." NAFTA, he could he could remove our membership from it. I absolutely think he's going to – I don't know what one, but I think he's going to move. He, this is his Monopoly game. He's been waiting his whole life for this. I don't think there's any chance he takes us out of NAFTA, Kim. I don't think he will either, but I know his supporters will be very disappointed by that. I don't think there's any chance he'll take us out of NAFTA, and I don't think there's any chance his supporters will be very disappointed by that. I think Donald Trump can do what he wants to his supporters whenever he wants, at any time he wants. That's the nature of a cult. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Some people work for what they get, and some people ask for Uncle Sam to give it to them. I know, but I deserve it. Decide who you want to be and listen to The Steve Day Show. All right, back to wrap it up here on a Tuesday night on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review here on the Salem Radio Network. What did we learn here this evening? We uh, we talked some politics. We talked Middle East. We talked gender roles in America, day one of a Trump presidency, what that could potentially look like. So we touched a lot of bases, covered a lot of ground here tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Kim, what did you learn? I was very moved by the testimony from the Assyrian Christian Juliana Tamorzi. Is that how you say her name? Tamarazi. Tamarazi. Um, she was incredibly brave and articulate, and I, I just want the listeners to go to her website, victimsofisis.org, and see what you can do to help support the Christians in that region. That conversation was um, uh, was an eye-opener, yes. or an ear-opener, in the case of radio. So don't be surprised if you hear that get replayed on this show sometime here in the future. So. We can expose more of that to uh, as much of the audience as we can. Jeff Sessions could use a little more schoolhouse rock, I think. I mean, there there was such a great opportunity, at the very least, just to make the left go nuts. You wouldn't have to be overly strident on either abortion or marriage and the courts, but you say something cryptic enough that just dominates the news cycle and, you know, makes them, you know, put on an extra layer on their tinfoil hats 
to me, that was the smart play, especially, Steve, if you're, th- if you're saying the default to these things, they're all going to get through. You take this opportunity to continue what has been successful for you before. Make the left and progressives just go nuts. Yeah, I, and I know there's going to be people in our audience going to be like, Steve, you can't expect him to just go in there and uh, fall on a sword and bleed his guts out. I, I get that. That's not what I'm asking either. I, but, but then, you know, can we not use their language, though? That's it. I mean... I, I this is the thing that the tuopoly the party duopoly and I gotta and and seeing yourself through the prism and your success and I get it I used to do this man when we were first married I man I used to come home from working at the newspaper and turn on Fox News at night and I'd be like my my mood was determined by who won the debates on Hannity and Combs I I, I did this I lived this life I get it. And I can't tell you how much better my life has gotten since I've let all that go. However, it does get more frustrating on one end because you do see the distinctions we're talking about. So you mean to tell me there was nothing that could have been strategically said between the Steve Dace uh, uh, bullet to the face answer, and how, which ends with, and how you like me now, mic drop, which of course means you don't get confirmed <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, I get that. So there's nothing between that answer and, yeah, Roe v. Wade is the law of the land, and I will enforce it. There's nothing between that. Nothing at all. Nothing that could have been, no no ground to claim at all between spill your guts or ingest their pig vomit. Nothing in between. This is what political parties do to us. John 3, 17. Listening to Steve Dace.